Hey everyone, welcome back to the Practicology Podcast. Hope you caught episode 90 where Vincent Kember gave us three lessons from Daniel 2 and 7 about what we should expect from government. Lesson number one, the Bible presents both the glory and the terror of human government. Lesson two was things are getting worse, not better. Thirdly, all human rule is temporary. Praise the Lord, the Lord Jesus' kingdom is coming. Now, Vincent has returned today for part two. And Vince, one thing I think you made clear in the first episode is that our theology of government has to deal with this duality of recognizing human government is a good concept while also seeing it as very problematic. It is not God's ultimate answer to the problems in the world, nor can it be. Hi, Matthew. It's good to be back. So that's right. And as with so many other things in a fallen world, we're navigating a tension, right, between the it is good of God's creation but then the effects of sin and brokenness. And it's good to remember that it's impossible for us to fully untangle how those two things coexist, the goodness of creation, but the effects of sin. And government is just another example of this. It is good. It's ordained by God, and he's ultimately sovereign over it. But the Bible also alerts us to the dark side of human power, and in fact, to the dark powers that are behind those very authorities. We tend to fall into simplistic extremes when we view government. So one extreme would be being naively enthusiastic. The other extreme would be cynically critical. So we discussed in episode one, our conception of government, how we imagine it. I think this is an essential starting point, but we still have decisions to make, especially in times of crisis. We've kind of seen that over the past couple of years. Uh, we have to make decisions about how we'll actually respond to our governments, to their mandates, their decisions, and their exercise of authority. So the next logical question, I think, is to ask ourselves, not just how do we think of government, but how do we respond to government? After all, the practicology is all about applying the teaching of scripture to practical situations day by day, right? You got it. I'm glad you get what we're all about here. And uh, I'm glad you're delving into some controversial waters today, Vincent. I'm glad you're doing it more than me. But uh, how do you plan to go about navigating this murky swamp? All right, so here's the plan, hoping to proceed in this order. First, um, to demonstrate that Scripture's clear intention is that our default position be one of submission to authority. So we'll spend a bit of time in the epistles to see that. And then I want to circle back to, you guessed it, the book of Daniel, to discuss the times where resistance is warranted. I think there's some good case studies of both passive resistance and active resistance. So we kind of have these three categories of response, submission, passive resistance, active resistance. And I'm hoping that these will address most of the situations we could find ourselves in today. So let's dive in with this, what I'm calling default position from scripture, which is submission. So first of all, what do we mean by submission? Now it might do us some good if we reread the whole uh, epistle of First Peter. And Matthew, we saw last episode, what a quick reader you are. So do you think you could do that for us? <laughs> the whole epistle might be a bit much for the podcast, but how about I read some scriptures here in chapter two? Would that be good? Sounds good. All right. Verses 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So there's a lot packed into those few verses. This idea of being subject that we saw at the beginning there, verse 13, or being in submission to, it doesn't actually stop uh, with our relationship to government here in this epistle of First Peter. That's why I was kind of saying, if you know people could take the time to read the whole epistle, I think you'll see this theme woven through the letter. Because as the letter continues, you have similar instructions. So in the workforce, so employees and employers, in the home, wives and husbands, in the church, younger and older, and then finally for all of us before God. We're told, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So what exactly is submission? Um, I turn to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia for this definition. Affectionately known as ISBE. ISBE, that's right. It says it's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. So it involves recognizing authority and specifically recognizing that that authority applies to you. So in 1 Peter, um, this idea of being subject to or in submission to, it's linked to words like respect, honor, humility, and it's uh, contrasted with how we are to deal with Satan. In chapter 5, verse 9, we're told, resist him firm in your faith. So firm resistance is the opposite to submission. So it's important to note that submission is not a blind obedience in every circumstance. And vitally, it doesn't require agreement. So we don't just submit when we see eye to eye. In fact, Peter reminds the workers to submit not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. Husbands that do not obey the word are mentioned in chapter 3, while chapter 5 foresees that some elders will be working under compulsion or for shameful gain or in a domineering way. So these are all, I guess you could say, non-ideal circumstances. And it's clear in these cases that submission isn't based on whether or not we think our leaders are making the right choices or whether our own advantage will be maximized. So attitudes to government often fall into the extremes, like I was saying, of naive allegiance sort of on one side or resistance and unrest. Today, you might say that what we see is uh, it's often called slacktivism. So these small gestures or this atmosphere of sarcasm and disdain that's not actually accompanied with much action. But the Christian worldview, it, uh, I think it really presents a unique option between the sort of naive allegiance or the resistance and unrest. And that option is submission. We're not just sheeple following you know, blindly along, and we're not freedom fighters. We submit with our eyes open. We see that the God of this world is behind the world powers and that the mighty hand of God is over all. Mm. And then we humble ourselves under that mighty hand. And at times it will mean suffering. And the recipients of First Peter, they knew that firsthand in a way, obviously, that most of us don't. And I think that's a really pertinent point, something that we always need to bear in mind. The scripture's calls to submit to governing authorities were given during an era of harsh anti-Christian government. They didn't enjoy many of the freedoms and protections we enjoy today, yet still the Lord's teaching was not to be revolutionaries, but to submit. Yeah, so submission is our default position as Christians, even when it's frustrating, painful, or unjust. But 
Is it just a matter of gritting our teeth and closing our eyes? I think the Holy Spirit through Peter gives us some important tools here. So first, he says that we have an example in Christ himself. Chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he's, so we have the example in Christ, and then he shows the, the whole epistle that we have a hope. So our current suffering will be eclipsed by future glory. So right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And lastly, with each command to be in submission, we've talked about four groups, uh, government, employers, husbands, and elders. In, in each one of those, there's also a, an effect or a, a purpose that we're, we're reminded of. So with government, we're told that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, and then that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So the submission ha has a purpose for government. For employers, we're told this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. For husbands, uh, we're told that they might be one, uh, unbelieving husbands, they might be one without a word. And then for elders, we're told that God gives grace to the humble. So in each case, there's a purpose to the submission. When we submit to these authorities on earth, we do so ultimately because we're submitting first and last to God himself. Now, I'm a teacher, and one of my students at times have to submit to a bad substitute teacher. It does happen. I appreciate that because I understand that they're not doing it out of respect for that person that they perhaps have no respect for. They're doing it out of respect for me, for my authority uh, that has been delegated for a time um, to that teacher. So it's the, uh, the authority of that substitute teacher is under the umbrella of my authority. And in the same way, when we submit to the government, we're not actually doing so because of the final authority that it has in itself, but out of submission to our true Lord and to his commands. And he will give us the grace to do it and the reward for doing it. Our submission to the authorities here on earth, especially the ones that do their job poorly, is an act of service to the perfect king. It's temporary, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ, chapter 2 says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So that's, um, I think, a lot of help from First Peter. Obviously, there's other scriptures um, that speak about this. Maybe you can run through a few of them for us, Matthew. Sure. Uh, Romans chapter 12, 17, 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter, again, 1 Peter 3, where he's quoting Psalm 34, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we see the tenor of Scripture and of the New Testament here with this word peaceable, peace, peaceful. This is the default position that God is, is intending for us. Now, obviously, we have to turn to what's probably considered the classic passage on the topic, which is Romans 13. I've kind of consciously avoided it up to this point, 
for the simple reason that that's often where this debate is centered. And I'm hoping to show that the Bible's teaching goes beyond just this one passage. But uh, maybe you can read it for us there, Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Vincent, obviously those are great scriptures, but you know one of the questions that is going to arise out of that is what about authorities that we would feel cannot or should not be described as servants of God, avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Does, does that give us liberty to ignore an authority that doesn't govern using godly principles? Well, that's one of the questions for sure. I guess on an ex a less extreme version of that question might be, is it ever wrong to resist authority? So clearly the apostles did it. You look at Acts chapter 5 when they were commanded to stop preaching, and this classic statement, they said, we must obey God rather than men. So the scripture does make provision for cases where we must shift from that default position of submission that we see. That's really the tenor, that's the intention of scripture, our default position. There's times where we have to sh shift from that to civil disobedience or resistance. And I think for this, if we go back to Daniel for some help, we can look at a few case studies. So I mentioned sort of these two forms of resistance that I find I think we find in this book. So passive resistance is not doing something that you're told or expected to do. And active resistance would be doing something that breaks a norm, an expectation, or a law. So my, word, my use of the word resistance here, I'm not trying to give the impression that we're engaging in aggressive activity or some form of attack on the government or its officers. I have a hard time conceiving of a situation where the scripture would warrant that kind of activity um, from a believer um, in, in most of our normal daily lives, at least. But by and large, uh, what you and I might be faced with, Matthew, are situations where we're called to disobey authority, either passively or actively. So the, the examples that come to mind for passive res resistance, I think of Daniel 1, where the godly young men refuse to defile themselves with the king's meat and Daniel 3, where they refused to bow to the image that the king had established. That's passive. And then active resistance, I think of Daniel 6, where there was a law that was made against praying to other gods for 30 days. And Daniel continued his practice of praying to Yahweh and not even bothering to try uh, to hide it. So I'm going to take for granted that my listeners are familiar with those accounts so that we don't have to uh, read the whole epistle of 1 Peter and the whole book of Daniel. Um, just for sake of time, but obviously each of those case studies could be unpacked and explored in detail. But let's just try to note a few things here. So first question, when did they resist? So they resisted when they were clearly put in a situation where they were required to break God's command. So eating unclean food, 
participating in idolatry, or praying to an earthly king rather than to God. So in each case, it wasn't just a matter of a simple disagreement with the state. And it wasn't a matter of trying to overturn Babylonian customs or to force Babylonians to live as Israelites. In fact, Daniel directly says in chapter 9 that he was aware of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And we read those words in Jeremiah chapter 29. He tells them, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So there's an interesting principle for, for us today, I think, in that as well. So their default was submission to the state, even seeking its well-being. You see Daniel involved in the civic and the political life of the kingdom. But in specific instances, the dictates of the state and the commands of Yahweh came into direct clashing conflict. And that's when Daniel and the three other heroes of the book take their stand. Maybe we don't have time to to read all of that, but you could just sing the song, Daniel was a man of prayer praying three times daily. <laughs> but Would you like to do that for us, Matthew? Or? I better not. But you've, so you've described... So you've described the timing of their resistance was when they were clearly put in a situation where they were required to break God's command. That's right. And I guess the next question, so when did they resist, but also how did they resist? So it's almost as important as the context for their civil disobedience or resistance, as I'm calling it, um, is the manner in which they carried it out. So in our own time, there's a need, I think, really to be aware of, to be sensitive to the damage that has been done to Christian testimony by people who bear the name of Christ. And whether rightly or wrongly, the things that people in our culture often associate to Christianity are far from the things that the Bible says we should be known for, loving our neighbor, good works, helping the vulnerable, and so on. So I think there's a lot to learn in the way that these men carried out their resistance. I want to pick out sort of four Four things I noticed about how they did it. So the first is a conciliatory tone and approach. You notice the detailed negotiations that are described in chapter one, when Daniel didn't want to defile himself with the king's food and wine. He didn't stand up in the food hall and make a scene. He won over the steward. He had, he had a winsome approach, and he was also ready to submit himself to the consequences. He says, deal with your servants according to what you see. So I noticed that conciliatory tone. Second thing is the absence of protest or complaint. So in Daniel 3, with this statue that everyone has to bow to, or Daniel 6, this law against prayer, they both point out that there was a conspiracy of officials. There's a malicious intent behind the persecution. And yet you don't read a single word of protest or complaint in either case. They could have pointed out the unfairness of the law or the inflexibility of its application, or the dubious intent of their accusers, but they did none of the above. Third thing is the, the testimony, so the strength of their conviction, their faith in a greater authority. And throughout the book of Daniel, the resistance to the state is paired always with an appeal to a higher authority. So you notice chapter three, the king says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Their answer is, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So they talk about the God whom we serve. 
yes, we are in submission to the state, but there is a higher power that we serve. You read the rest of that chapter, the rest of the book, you see that this testimony had a, a huge impact, I think, on the king and really on the kingdom at large. And then the fourth point is their readiness to suffer for their conviction. So there's no appeal to rights, even when those rights are at times denied, ignored, trampled on. They trusted in God for that deliverance, but they also balance that with knowledge that God's plan might not include that. They say he is able, but if not, in the, the quotation we just read there. So they understand that when the state reveals its beastly side, they might get caught in its maw. You know, we go back to the last episode, seeing the beastly sides of these kingdoms. <laughs> we might very well get caught in that destructive activity. Many believers have been over the, over the years. And these men don't run away. And of course, people will turn to Paul and, and talk about his use of normal human protections, his, his Roman citizenship, for example, in Philippi. Um, and that is, is a good and helpful thing to do. But also remember that he didn't use that Roman citizenship to get out of jail in the first place. And so I think the principle is we can enjoy the protections that are afforded to us in our nation, in our society today, but it's not the place in which we find our ultimate safety. So just run through them again, conciliatory tone, absence of protest, the strength of their conviction and the testimony that that had, and their readiness to suffer for their conviction. Good points, Vincent. I especially like, uh, I think I'm going to give you a bonus point for using the word maw, which we don't hear very often. <laughs> quick, A quick Google shirt shows that is the jaws or throat of a voracious animal, so that fit in well. But, <laughs> but I am thinking of another question that comes out of the Romans 13 text. <clears throat> what if the government goes beyond the realm of their God-given authority. In other words, what if they reach into areas of my life that they aren't supposed to? And uh, there's still going to be a need for some judgment calls here, right? Like, let me sketch a couple of examples for you. We homeschool our children, and uh, I use the word we loosely. Esther takes on almost all of that work. But let's say the province of Nova Scotia says it is no longer permissible to homeschool children, and you need to put them in public schools. And I know you're a public school teacher, so that be I'd be happy to have you teach my kids. But anyway, well, okay, I may have some recourse in the Canadian justice system if that law came down, uh, mindful of the winsome approach that you have just advocated. But in the end, if they rule against me, I expect we would submit to the Department of Education and enroll our children in school, even though I don't think the government should be able to mandate that. I, I disagree, and I'd submit. But if they went really wonky, and I don't think this is going to happen, but and they said... I wasn't allowed to teach my children the scriptures at home. I expect I would actively resist that law and risk the consequences. This is like Daniel praying in his mm -hmm. home. Uh, not that I think that's about to happen, but I'm just trying to give a contemporary example. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think every situation is going to require prayerful consideration. I guess maybe I'm staying abstract uh, on purpose here. <laughs> But I think these principles, I think what you're doing and trying to apply them is really helpful. So you have that default position of submission, and then there's times where prayerfully you have to decide whether you're going to actively or passively resist and also make sure we're doing it in a scriptural way. That's good. So whether and when and how to resist authority is going to take some prayerful consideration. It should not be done lightly in light of Scripture's clear teaching. Exactly. And obviously, this doesn't answer every situation with all its nuances and shades. And really, neither does scripture, right? 
Instead, God gives us principles, and he, he asks us to call on him for wisdom as we prayerfully apply those principles to our time and place. So obviously, I realize that many practical questions still remain. We could run through, you know, 100 different case studies, and I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. But I hope I've been able to sketch out at least kind of the beginning of a framework for answering these two questions. How should we think of government? We saw that last episode. And how should we respond to government? What are some some general um, principles from scripture that we should bring to bear. So I do want to challenge myself and to the believers around me, if we're not currently marked by being peace, peaceable, respectful, marked by a default position of submission, even when we disagree with the state, then we need to humble ourselves, as Peter said, under the mighty hand of God. Let's remember and let's be thankful that the world is not in our hands it's in his. That is fantastic. And uh, I mean, you, you just mentioned a moment ago that, yes, there's going to be practical questions that remain. I, I don't doubt that some people have tuned in to see what you're going to say about whether the church should still meet during a COVID lockdown. But in in my mind, there's, there's a few reasons why we haven't given an authoritative statement there. Number one, we are respecting the autonomy of local churches. We're respecting the local shepherds that have to make those decisions. There's no chapter in the Bible that says this is how the church handles a pandemic. Secondly, uh, you've given us principles. You just made this point. This is how a lot of life works, is that we take these principles of Scripture, and then with wisdom from God, with dependence upon God, we seek to apply them to our circumstances. Yeah, I think that's right. And here's the thing. Not everyone's circumstance is the same. Not every local church was in the same circumstance. There's different people that make up those churches. There were different policies in different places. So, And, and the health situation in places was, was different. So, uh, again, the situation is not the same for everybody. And to just give a, a ruling like that, I, I just feel like it, it oversimplifies the the tension that exists in that decision. There's a there's competing biblical principles. Yes, the church is to me. Yes, we are to submit to government. And there's a tension there, and we need wisdom from God and how to apply that in our given circumstances. And if I can just allow myself, Matthew, um, even when there seems to be, like you said, these competing principles that we're working through, working out, there are some things that are are unequivocal. And I think what we talked about in this last point on, on how it's done, how this resistance is done. That is pretty clear on scripture um, in terms of the, the attitude and, and the way that it's done, this peacefulness, this conciliatory tone and so on. So I think those are good principles to remember for all of us. Thank you. And let me close by reminding everyone of where Vincent closed a moment ago. Let's remember and be thankful that the world is not in our hands it's in God's. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Vincent, for this teaching and for taking on this subject. May the Lord bless you. Thanks for having me, Matthew. And may the Lord bless you all, our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Practicology Podcast. Yeah.